you know, instructions on how to build something is pretty important. If you've been ever in that situation where you just got something from Ikea or a children's furniture or toy for your kids, and you're just sitting there and you open the box and you have to make it, uh, most of us, I assume, do what I do, where I empty the box, I get all the parts in order, and then I set the box right in front of me, and I look at the picture and say, all right, so I got to get there. And of course, the manual is sitting to the side of me, or it's just holding all the screws and nuts and bolts. It's just a placeholder, and I'm staring at the picture, and I'm just like, okay, so these parts have to come out looking like that. And we've been in that situation before. When we read just here is not so much an instruction on how to build it, because we're told that actually God shows Moses, but what we've read is an account of a description on what it looks like, so that, that the people may see that this indeed was accurate to the one that God was showing Moses to build. But nevertheless, whether you're following instructions or someone is showing you, Building something properly is important. It's crucial, not only for its structural, but also for its aesthetics and what it may mean. And so we see that there are very specific things that God tells Moses to do in regards of building this tabernacle, this temple. And that's what we've just read. So the question is, why is God so specific why does he want so much detail? Why does he spell out exactly what types of wood, what types of metals, what types of coloring of, of linen? Well, last week, if we remember, last week, as we started this Advent season, we looked at how God condescended at the Mountain Sion. We established how God is holy and majestic. He comes down to meet with Moses on this mountain. And although this, mo this mountain itself is not holy, it is holy because of the presence of God. So we see that God has condescended to this mountain, meets with Moses, and that all the other people weren't able to come up. Only the chosen prophet Moses went up, along with only a few people who God allowed to meet with him. So we see that there is this separation. But today, as we enter in the second week of Advent, we see that this separation starts to close a little more. We see that it's not God condescending to his people from a mountaintop, but now he's coming to ground level. And this is why it's so important, because God, who is holy, who is set apart, the Savior King, the Holy of Holies, is now getting ready to dwell with his people on ground level. He is a king. He is a God. He is the one who created all things. And because he is so separate and different, he gives these specific instructions on how to honor him and draw near to him. Every detail is important because this is the place where God will dwell with his people. This is one of the closest that God will be with his people since the time of the garden. So this week, as we continue again in our second week of the Advent season, 
We see that God condescends not from the mountain, but now at ground level to this tabernacle. And he is moving towards dwelling with his people. And this is just a little picture again. So if we were to make a model, I know none of us would look at the instruction. We'd just look at this and go, okay, so i got to get there. But this is just a picture to show us what Moses and the people were made to build. So today's gospel message, the good news this morning is that God wants to be with you. It's that simple. That God wants to be with you. That the creator God wants to be with you. And this is an important message we need to hear. Because we often have a weird view of God, especially when we are going through the Old Testament. We think that God is angry, that he's a judge. We see God in such a way where we think that he, he's tired of us, or he, he pities us, or he, he's sick of us, or he even despises us. I'm sure that many of us assumed when God condescended to the mountain that the people weren't allowed to come near just because God said, I don't want those grubby hands coming near my mountain. I don't want those dirty, scandalous people near me. We probably assume that, that God over time just gets sick of his people. And although he loves them, it's kind of a love-hate relationship. But this is not true. We'll see as how God starts to come and condescend in the tabernacle, that he wants to be with his people, that his love is still pure, that his love is still fervent, that he's coming after them. He's coming after you. God wants to be with you. That's what we need to hear this morning. That's what we need to believe this morning. The God who knit you in your mother's womb, the God who knew you before time began, this God wants to be with you. Whether you feel unlovable or you're just a dude who doesn't quite understand emotions and commitment, you're not sure what's going on, the fact remains that God pursues you because he wants to be with you. And this is random, I don't know why, but as I'm sitting here, even if you feel disgusting at times, and I know some of us are going to laugh it off, but even if you struggle with your body image, even if you feel disgusted after what the scale tells you, even after the holidays, you feel your clothes don't fit right, and you just, just feel unlovable. Even in those moments, no matter how you view yourself, God wants to be with you. That's what I want us to keep in mind as we continue in our Advent series, as we wait for the Lord to come as if it was the first time again. I want us to understand this is all happening because God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with you. God doesn't tell you that you're unholy or broken or sinful or unworthy just so that he can separate himself from you. He tells you these things so you know why he is coming near to you. God doesn't point out all of our weaknesses so that he can flee from us. He points them out so that we may see and know that was the very reason he comes to us. God wants to be with you. And we'll see this as we look at a three-part segment. First, the temple, the garden, and the cross. 
And we'll see how God wants to be with his people through these three ways. So first, the temple. Now, we're talking about how God condescends to his people. And I know many of us might know the definition, but I know a lot of times when we hear the word condescension, we think condescending. And there's nothing people hate more when people are condescending to you, when they treat you like a child, or when they're patronizing. I remember when I would go out to eat to restaurants with some older Korean folks, and we order some kind of stew, they would say this. They would say, And in translation, that means, do you know how to eat this? I said, I, I think I can manage. I do a pretty good job. I, I mean, what's so hard about it? And then I remember the reversed. Usually when I cook steak for older Korean people, they don't like medium rare. They want it well done, even if it's a filet. And in those moments, I think to myself, do you know how to eat the steak? It's, they, they don't. They, they don't know how to eat the steak. So that's not what we're talking about when we say condescension. When God is condescending, he's not looking down on us, mocking us, patronizing us. No, condescension is trying to capture this movement of a holy God who is far and high, moving down and towards us, speaking at our level. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes when you talk to your beloved puppy, your cat, or your child, when you hear older people talk to little animals or children, how do they talk? Oh, hey. Oh, you're so cute. And they give him their little parts of pinky. And they just, they're so gentle and they touch him. What are they doing? What are we doing in those moments? When we're snuggling with our little puppies, we're condescending. We're meeting them at their level. We are using a voice inflection that communicates, I don't want to scare you. I want to draw near to you. We're doing things that communicates, don't be afraid. I'm, I, want to, I want to get closer to you. This is what we mean when God condescends to us. He is speaking at our level. He is coming to us. Let me give you an illustration of a tent that I own at home. Recently, we cleared out an area, a corner of our home with toys, with rockers, things our children don't need anymore. We put them in storage. There was this nice open space for once in our household. So what do we decide to do? Fill it with more toys. Fill it with more junk. We go on Amazon, we buy this tent, a tent. It's a little castle. The dimensions are there. And my son loves to go in here. And the first time we got it, he made all of us go in there. Me, my wife, himself, and his little brother. And all of us are in this tent. And we feel small, and we feel little, we feel silly. I can barely fit in the doorway, let alone fit inside the space. I have to get on my knees, but also like arch my back to fit through it. I can't even go flat on all sixes. And I was like, this is ridiculous, but my son loves it. When we're inside, we play, we look at the different pictures inside. Oh. Oh. He says, having so much fun, having so much fun. And I realize it's so special to him. And when I can condescend to that level and be with him and engage him, he loves it. He knows that I'm there with him. And we have to leave, of course, after a while because it gets really hot, and especially if someone uh, toots a little bit, it fills up the tent very nicely. But this is similar to what God is instructing Moses to make. 
this tent, this tabernacle, this place where God will condescend to meet with his people. In the perspective of God, this is silly. Does he need someone to build something to, so that he can go in and dwell? No, he doesn't dwell in a temple made by hands of man. This is for us. This is so that he can be with his people. God condescends. And it's through this temple, through this tabernacle, he does it. Exodus 25.8 tells us this, And let them make me a sanctuary, a place that I will dwell, that I might dwell in their midst. This is, this is echoing the similar line where in Exodus 6-7, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will know that I loved you, I came for you, I rescued you, you are mine, I am yours. This is a tender type of affirmation. God wants to be with his people and it's through the temple in this context right now that that is happening. God instructs Moses to make this. Again, so that he can be with his people. But don't forget the context that they are in. They are in wilderness. This is a tent. But the beauty of it is, if we think about it even a little bit more is that this tent is portable. As the Israelites travel, the Lord is with them. The Lord wants to be with them so much that he travels with them, so to speak. Wherever they go, he goes. Wherever they are, he is. Brothers and sisters, in our time of wilderness, as God desires to be with us, he doesn't necessarily just call us to come to church. No, he meets us in our wilderness, where we are. He meets us there. And we'll flesh that out a little further later. Yet here's one thing still, a caveat. Something that reminds us that not, not everything is as it should be. As we look here, again, in the temple, Moses is instructed to make this curtain. A curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from just the holy place. As we see here, God instructs Moses, although he is to make a place where God is going to be with his people, that there still is required a separation. It's still necessary for something to come in between. And the question is, why? What is that? Why can't the people fully enjoy now God at ground level? Well, we have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to the garden. As we look at Exodus 26, 2, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of five fine twin linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Exodus 26, 31, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. We see that this tabernacle is reminding us of some of the imagery that we saw in creation and in Genesis. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It was the place where God dwelled with Adam and Eve. It's a place where God dwelled with his people, where there was no sin. 
Yet after they sinned, after sin entered, after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God had to send them out of that garden, we're told. God had to send them out to protect them from also eating from the tree of life so that they would not get stuck and live forever in this state of sinfulness. So after sin has entered, God lovingly closed them, closed their nakedness, sends them out of the garden. He tells them that there will be a plan, that he will save them. But for now, he sends them away, heartbroken, and he sets a cherubim with a swinging fire sword at the entrance. And this cherubim represents that in order to come back, you would receive judgment for what you've done. And it represents that it protects this tree of life. In Genesis 3, 24, again, we see that in the garden, the cherubims guard the entrance and the tree. And then now in the Holy of Holies, in this temple, in this tabernacle, the curtains are made as the cherubims are put into it to show that this represents still, even though God wants to be with us, sin keeps us from fully dwelling with him, fully enjoying him, being satisfied in his presence, that sin is still keeping us apart. And we're reminded of this, even in the instruction of the temple. But God provided a way for the people to be with him yet again. We see that even though this garden limitation because of sin is carried forth in the tabernacle, as time moves forward and as God's plan for redemption goes on, we see our third and final point at the cross. We see at the cross that something happens. To be more accurate, we see as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, that something happens. As we observe this Advent season, we anticipate Jesus' first coming as if it was the first time. That's what it's all about. And so as we think about today's text, as we look at the cross once more, I hope that we would feel once more again the joy and the freshness of the gospel that Jesus comes to fix this curtain issue, to fix this flaming sword of judgment issue that all of us are faced with. If we look at John 2, 18 to 21, this is what Jesus says. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Matthew 27, 51 and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. We see at the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, when Jesus died on that cross for the sins of the world, for our sins, we are told that the curtain tore from top to bottom. And oftentimes we're told the significance of this is that it wasn't like Jesus died on the cross and then all the temple priests came and says, okay, I know what this means. Let's tear the veil. No, it wasn't torn from the bottom up. It was torn 
As if God himself is saying, now there is no separation. Your sins are paid for. You may enter into my presence. More so, there is no need for a temple because Jesus himself is the temple that was raised. So we see again from the garden from the temple, and because of the cross now, this temple, this idea where God dwells, where God is, where God wants to be with his people, this spatial understanding changes. It's nuanced. It's more specific. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 tells us this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul's writing, for we are the temple of the living God. Paul's saying, Christians, you are now a temple of the living God in Christ Jesus. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's going back to the promise of God that was given from the old. It's reminding us that Jesus himself is the one that, is, that came to tear this curtain, to make a new temple. And Paul reminds us, for all those who trust and believe in Jesus, we now are a temple of God. And what's the beauty of the, of, of, of the temple of God being in our hearts? Well, it's portable too, isn't it? Wherever we go, God is there. What is the beauty well, it reminds us that the promise that Jesus gives us, I will never leave or forsake you, is indeed true. It reminds us that as we walk in this wilderness, that God walks with us and that we are not alone. It reminds us and affirms the promise and the heart and the desire of God that he wants to be with you because now he is inside of you and he wants to continue to walk with you. God wants to be with you. And this is how it happened. God wants to be with you. So for all those who trust in Jesus, the temple that was raised, we too are also made to be ones where God dwells, where God is. And this is a beautiful reality as we understand just what God means when he says, I want to be with you. It's the most intimate way that we can, it doesn't matter how, how far we go, the, the, the darkness we experience, because God is with us now. This is why we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, as we think about the Christmas season. But that's not the end, because we're still in between the completion of the story. Do you, know what, do you want to know what's better? We thought God dwelling inside of us was amazing, but Revelations 21 tells us this. It gives us the full picture. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Revelations 21 tells us when Jesus comes again, for the second and last time, that we will be with God forever. And as the children's book reminds us in such simple language, at that time, we can live with God forever. There will be nothing bad and no one sad 
we will see God and speak to God and just enjoy being with God, just as he planned. It will be wonderful to live with him, and it's all because of Jesus. And so as we close this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you to remember, to keep this in the forefront of your mind as we go through this Advent season, as we anticipate the joy of Christmas, of Christ being born into this world, of God condescending to dwell with us. I want us to keep this in mind and have our hearts filled with joy. I want us to keep this in mind whenever doubt creeps in, whether it's body image or shame or guilt or or, or just doubts, whatever it is, that God wants to be with you. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, we are made into a temple where God dwells. More so, when Jesus returns, the old former ways will pass away and everything will be made new. Everything will be made new. You think the Christmas decorations, the snow-covered trees is beautiful, but when Christ returns, we will see a glory and a beauty that covers everything. We will be made white like snow, fully redeemed, and everything around us will be fully restored. There'll be no more needs for ornaments or lights or even planning celebrations or trips because when Christ himself comes, God will dwell with us. When Christ himself comes, we will hear God's voice saying, I am yours, you are mine. He will wipe away every tear. And sorrow would dare not come near us once more. Brothers and sisters, will you remember this? Will you long for this? Will you anticipate this as we move towards Christmas? God condescended through Jesus for you and I because he wants to be with you.